regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Datacast and today I have the pleasure to chat with Shreya Shankar. Shreya is a computer scientist living in the Bay Area. She is interested in making machine learning work in the real world. Currently, she works at Viaduct, which is an applied machine learning startup. But most recently, she did research at Google Brain. She graduated from Stanford University with a Bachelor of Science degree in computer science, concentrating in system. And right now, she's uh, working on her master's degree, also Stanford in, in computer science, concentrating in uh, artificial intelligence. So yeah, Shreya, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So yeah, I want to start our conversation discussing a little bit about your educational background, right? So as I just mentioned, you study at Stanford and you know you study system and AI. So what was it about computer science that uh, got your interest? And what were some of your favorite you know, CS courses that you've taken at Stanford? Yeah, so when I showed up to Stanford, I initially wanted to major in economics, but in the fall quarter of my freshman year, I also took a CS course, an intro CS course, because everybody in my dorm was taking the CS course, and I didn't want to miss out. And I took the CS course, the intro course course was so well taught, and my econ course, I found myself never going to class, and I realized I should probably major in the field that I actually went to class for and enjoyed. So that's what got me interested in computer science. I also loved that there was such a vibrant community around teaching people how to code, learning coding for the first time. There seemed to be women in computer science groups. I went into it solely probably because of the community and all of the potentials that coding was like advertised to bring about. Uh, my favorite courses at Stanford or CS courses at Stanford, I think my all-time favorite one is this advanced operating systems course in which we essentially read four to five papers every week about like systems design or just systems in general that were built. And I really loved that overview of kind of what does it take to build something that a lot of people use um, and something that never existed before. Because I felt like in a lot of other computer science classes that I took, we were kind of sitting in a corner writing thousands of lines of code to build some assignment that probably would never see the light of day afterwards. But to get that bird's eye view about how to be a good engineer in general, I think is such a valuable skill that a lot of computer science courses don't teach. It seems that you, you know, want, want something out of just traditional engineering, hands-on coding and, and having that understanding of the history of, of the field and reading all these kind of papers was really helpful throughout your education. At Stanford, you also spend a decent amount of time as a section leader and teaching assistant for CS198, which is a, a group of students responsible for teaching the introductory CS courses. You know, what have you learned from teaching that has impacted the work you do today? Yeah, so the CS198 program consists of undergraduate students who 
um, have taken the intro courses at Stanford, the intro Java course and the C++ course, have gone through numerous interviews, teaching interviews and practice and kind of act as teaching assistants for these intro courses. And each of these intro courses can have like 50 to 60 of these teaching assistants or section leaders. So it's a pretty large program, super fun community to be a part of. The biggest thing that I think that I've learned from 198 that is most relevant to my job today is the ability to communicate technical concepts to people who start out or people who are not as technical. And it's kind of hard because you, in the real world, are not really in a position of authority to explain anything. Like, For example, if I'm trying to work with a client at my job, it's not like I'm some like ridiculous genius expert that's coming in no the client also like controls the check and I need to come in with a humble perspective and can't um, really put off the client and I think that's really similar to undergrads teaching other undergrads because you're kind of their peer I remember when I first started being a section leader I was a freshman in college and I had students in my sections that were seniors or even grad students so it was kind of like, how do you distill technical concepts to non-technical people in a way that gets them excited about the tech and want to work on the same team as you uh, moving forward? Yeah, that's a very smart observation, how you link that up into the current work that you're doing today. So besides, you know, kind of getting involved with CS from an educational level, it seems that you also participate in a lot of extracurricular activities that getting more people from diverse backgrounds interested into CS education. And uh, yeah, in particular, you have so been a very strong advocate of diversity in tech. And based on my research at Stanford, you were one of the co-directors of She++, which is a nonprofit that aims to rebrand the engineer stereotype and strengthen the network of future female leaders in tech. So yeah, what are some of the hurdles that keep women away from considering technology as a career path and how does She++ address them? I, mean, I think you can unpack that a lot. There are tons of hurdles and there's enough research to show that there's holes in the entire pipeline from when girls are small children and people buy toys for them. They buy like princess dolls versus like Legos for boys. And just the disparity starts so young that for me, I guess the, the thing that's most striking to me is that there doesn't seem to be that much representation of women in technical roles. Um, I think that's changed a lot over the past few years, but definitely when I went to college, I didn't consider like being a software engineer because I, you can't be what you can't see. It's not like I saw the career of software engineer and thought, oh, shucks, I really want to be that, but there are no women in engineering, so I can't be that. It's just, it never occurred to me that I could be an engineer or that I could be, or do machine learning, or a researcher, or something like that. At least for, with regards to She++, the biggest initiative that I helped to run in She++ is something called Pound Include. And we basically, as part of Pound Include, pair high school students with college mentors that help them develop some sort of computer science education initiative in their hometown, whether that be a hackathon or like a summer camp. Um, it's not necessarily like building an app or project, but it's the idea of develop a community of women or minorities interested in coding um, in your hometown. And then we flew about 25 to 30 of these high school students to the Bay Area every year and took them around companies like Google, Facebook, even smaller tech companies and 
to see these high school students at the end of the whole like three day program be like, oh, wow, I could see myself here. She plus plus was run by 25 to 30 college women. Like they could see themselves three years from now. I think just being able to see somebody in a position that you could potentially be in uh, is super, super game changing. You know, you, you're not probably not working on, on the organization at the moment, but like, how has this evolved since you left? Get in touch with, you know, some of the group of people there and is there any particular progress that had been made since you left? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, unfortunately, we couldn't run the latest Pound Include program because of COVID. <laughs> couldn't fly anyone to the Bay Area. But I think one of the bigger expansion plans since I uh, left the program was to open chapters in different universities. So we have a chapter in Cape Town, in London. I think one is coming up on the East Coast and a couple of, in India. I'm not super sure right now what the status is because the world is kind of on pause. But I, I really like to see that idea of spreading community towards other schools. Awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that. During the summer of 2017, you uh, interned as a software engineer at Facebook in New York City, uh, working on civic engagement tools to have representatives connect with their constituents. So how was your, your internship experience there? I think that was the latest traditional software engineering experience that I had. Wow, so it's been a while. Um, there are a lot of things I really enjoyed about the internship. I loved being able to work with different people on a product that seemingly did good for the world. Like the goal of that team was to build products that helped people engage with their local politics. So for example, I don't know if you've seen those uh, election, like voting day reminder banners on your Facebook that basically say like, hey, it's time to vote, go to your nearest poll, or these are the representatives running for, or these are the candidates running for office in your area. So those are the kinds of tools that my team at Facebook had built. So I really enjoyed that kind of like social aspect of work and working with designers, product managers, engineers, data scientists, people of different skills and backgrounds. But I personally didn't like the act of software engineering. It just felt like I didn't have anything unique to bring to the table for mm -hmm. my project. Just maybe they needed somebody with like half an understanding of databases and ability to collaborate with other people. So I learned that I didn't like that specific role for myself. But I'm super thankful for my manager at the time who understood that I didn't want to be a software engineer forever. And he guided me towards a more multifaceted role, working with designers or PMs. And this role actually culminated in a two-week data science sprint at the end of the summer to predict whether a Facebook page or profile was a politician's profile based on um, just the text in that profile or page. And you'd actually be surprised, like a pretty important feature is the ratio of the number of followers to the number of likes. So for example, like politicians have way more followers than likes, but celebrities might have similarly equal followers and likes. Um, so that could help distinguish the two. So I, I really enjoyed doing that. It also helped me think about what kinds of roles I wanted to pursue post-graduation. I wanted to be able to collaborate with a lot of people. Uh, but maybe I didn't want to be a software engineer at a big company. And I, it's really nice to have learned that in three months rather than sign an offer after graduation and learn that in three years. Awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for emphasizing on, on that experience and, and kind of talking about, you know, understand your, your preferences for, for some career path. And yeah, it seems like the more experience you had, the better you understand yourself. 
you mentioned that having, having that um, experience working on data science at the end of your internship at Facebook, and now let's discuss sort of your branding into, into machine learning, okay? You, you spent the next one and a half years interning at Google Brain, specifically working on uh, machine learning security research. So yeah, how did you end up working on ML security? Um, you know, what got you interested in this? Yeah, that's a great question. So I interned at Brain on and off for probably like a year, year and a half. And what initially got me interested, I had a offer to do an internship at Google. I saw that everybody was super interested in AI research. And at the time, I'd kind of worked on research at Stanford, but not really. Like I hadn't written a paper or really done something substantial. Um, I'd worked with TensorFlow a little bit. I was really interested in applying machine learning to music. But I thought, okay, this would be cool to keep exploring. Like, what is machine learning research like? Fortunately, it is literally complete luck. Uh, I I don't know how else to explain it because I know this almost never happens. But my, my former manager, so he was a manager at Google Brain at the time. He reached out to me saying, hey, I saw your resume and we've never had an undergrad before, but it could be fun. So do you want to hop on a call and chat about your research interests? And I, I just remember that conversation so clearly as I was so clueless. How do you expect like a third year or somebody who just finished two years of undergrad to like really have interest in machine learning? And like he didn't have those expectations, but I had them for myself because I had to compete, I guess, with PhD applicants. Um, so it was very clear that I was very undirected. Um, and he definitely just took a chance on me. I, there's no other way to explain that. So I, I fell into machine learning security kind of by accident because that's what my manager was working on at the time. And I, I found that I really, really enjoyed it. I think because it seemed to be at the time, like a field that a lot of people were interested in. This was like 2017, mm -hmm. but there wasn't that much new work that came out like people were just publishing attacks on machine learning systems and trying to construct defenses but it's super hard to defend machine learning systems just like in traditional software systems it's much easier to attack than defend so i think what sustained my interest in that was just the excitement of a problem a toy problem in machine learning security that could have implications down the line it's not like machine learning was being used everywhere on a daily basis but definitely could have implications in the future if people were using machine learning algorithms to make actual decisions. Yeah, thanks a lot for you know, sharing that anecdote of how you get into Google Brain and getting to ML security. And yeah, like, let's, let's discuss further you know, in, into a particular publication that you work on during your time at Google Brain. So this paper is called Adversarial Examples That Fool Both Computer Vision and Time Limited Humans. And so I was reading the paper and it seems like your team construct adversarial examples that can transfer from computer vision models to the human visual system. So yeah, let's, let's unpack that, right? So how, how do the examples work and what are some of the implications for ML security in society? Yeah, great question. So what are the definitions or what is the definition of an adversarial example? Um, I think this definition is basically some input to a machine learning model that's crafted to get some intended output from that model. And a lot of the literature focuses on this minimal perturbation setting. So maybe only changing one pixel to get a different output class. But adversarial examples from a 
high level perspective don't need to be limited to that just minimal perturbation setting. If I was a hacker, like no one is telling me like, oh, you should only change one pixel in the image to fool the model. Like I will just do whatever thing. I'll, I'll rotate the image. I will, I don't know, swap 12 pixel. I'll do whatever it takes to fool the model if I'm so hell bent on fooling the model. Um, so yes, that's the definition of an adversarial example. Um, but what my team at Brain was super interested in was narrowing in on this like minimal perturbation setting. Is it possible to also fool humans with the same perturbation at a glance? So for example, if you had an image of a cat and you construct or you use gradient-based methods to construct an adversarial example to make a classifier, an ensemble of machine learning classifiers think that the cat is a dog, will the human also think that the cat is dog? A cat is a dog at a glance. Um, and we found that actually, yeah, more likely than not, they will think that it's a dog, which was very fascinating, or at least at a glance. And I think what are the implications of this? And specifically for humans, I think this shows that in some ways you can use uh, like gradient-based machine learning models to approximate decisions humans might make. And if you have like full access to these models parameters, you could possibly craft inputs to get some intended output. So if I were like a social media company building a feed and I have like deep neural networks to kind of decide what content to show on that feed, I could probably pretty easily manipulate that content in a systematic way to get the user to like feel sad or feel happy or some intended response out of the human, which I think is pretty crazy and not something that we think about because we're all kind of like slaves to the algorithms of products that we use. I see. And so, so this paper was written in 2018, right? So, in, in the past two years or so, like, what are some of the trends in MS security that you've been keeping up with and that sort of either address some of these limits or basically tackle some of the other problems? I'm just very, just very curious in, in sort of the yeah. research direction in, in this domain. Yeah. For sure. So what for what I've been keeping up with over the past several years, I think it's gotten to the point where it's, it's super easy to construct uh, adversarial attacks, but really hard to construct robust defenses. There was one uh, paper, I wonder if it was, it was one ICML paper one year, either 2018 or 2019, but essentially took the eight best defenses of a previous iClear conference and just attacked all of them, which <laughs> is kind of crazy in a few months if you could take our best defenses and just easily construct an attack and be like, okay, we're back to scratch. Um, so it kind of turned into this cat and mouse game, which is not good or bad in any setting, but it's definitely interesting to think about. And one of some of the more interesting literature that I've been reading lately is how do you use adversarial training methods to kind of help your classifier be more robust to other situations. So for example, like transfer learning or trying to learn new tasks. I think that stuff is really cool and unexplored. And it remains to be seen like what kinds of adversarial learning mechanisms can solve what kinds of problems in the future. Awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for, for sharing that. Just just a side note on um, being at Google Brain as an undergrad research intern, you probably have a chance to collaborate with much more seasoned researcher, you know, from PhD to, to postdoc to research scientist with a couple more years of experience. How, how is the collaboration process look like? 
you know, what, what, what did you learn from that kind of interaction? And, you know, um, you know, just, just our curiosity from, from your experience. Gosh, it was so different with everybody that I collaborated with. I think everybody brings such a unique skill set to the table that I can't generalize to say like, ah, this is one thing I learned from everybody. There were some collaborators that I have had that were just like incredibly knowledgeable about like, <laughs> like how like TensorFlow 2.0 works or um, like the static computation graph versus the dynamic computation graph. And I thought that was just crazy. That's a, that some people, at least before doing ML research, real, like seriously, I remember working with TensorFlow, seeing one of those shape errors, and then just like throwing my hands up and calling it like quits. Like, okay, somebody else, like, can you please help me debug this? I don't know what to do. But I, I was really exposed to people who took those errors with some curiosity and like dove in literally as deep as possible. And, and it, it made me realize like every problem that I had was solvable. It wasn't that they were unsolvable problems. And I just needed to go in a little bit deeper to solve it. So that, that was really cool to kind of see examples of people working or types of people who really dove in technically. Um, I was also super impressed by people who just kind of like churn out math on a whiteboard like no other. It made me realize like I'm never gonna be good at math like some people and that's okay. It just means I need to craft another unique skill set but it's, it's great to know some people who are just really good at math, who understand the math behind things um, and are also very good at explaining it. I remember uh, for one project that I worked on, there's this algorithm called a Lanchos algorithm. And I was learning about it. This was in the context of basically trying to compute like eigenvalues or eigenvectors of, or approximate them uh, for like super large matrices. And this person that was explaining the algorithm to me hadn't seen the algorithm for five years. And was like, oh yeah, I kind of remember what that was. And she read it on Wikipedia for a minute and then proceeded to give like a better explanation of this algorithm than any other explanation I had read on the internet or in any textbook or in like complex optimization book. So like, stuff like that is like, you just meet really incredible people and I feel like that's just carried with me forward. Like wherever I work now, I always want to be working with incredible people who just like, even one year later, I feel like at my current company, I'm learning so much from my coworkers. I wouldn't want to be in any other type of place. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot for you know, sharing your experience there. And uh, one of the points that I pick up is that you, you mentioned that idea of bringing additional unique skill set, right? want to go full mode into math or full mode into like debugging coding uh, algorithms, stuff like that. My next question kind of related to that part of you. Stepping back from your expertise in machine learning, you also study computer system at Stanford. And uh, in fact, you, you wrote this blog post called Why You Should Measure in System last year, which uh, includes five concrete reasons. So what advice do you have for engineers who are interested in multiple specializations? Yeah, so at the time that I was majoring in computer science, I think I declared artificial intelligence as my specialization. But as I was learning more about machine learning or ML research, I always felt like there was some new hot thing in the field. And it was like, oh, my God, I have to learn it. Like, I remember when the Capsule Networks paper came out and I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to read this and I have to like be on top of this. And it's so overwhelming to like have to be on top of everything. 
what I realized is that it's always going to feel overwhelming because the rate of innovation and machine learning is just so high. Like new papers come out all the time. So the, the skill set that I really wanted to develop in college is like learning how to learn rather than just knowing all of whatever new innovations came out in the field. And I think systems is actually a really good track for teaching people how to learn new concepts that could seem daunting as first, at first. And I guess like advice for engineers who are interested in multiple specializations, school is a very interesting time to be able to learn fundamentals and learn how to learn new things like learn how to use debuggers learn how basic systems work things like distributed computing it's not like it just came out of the blue five years ago like these principles have been in the works since like i don't know like time sharing when time sharing came about um, in the late 1900s so kind of just like having that end-to-end -end perspective over it, there's always going to be things that come out but as long as you're fearless and confident about diving into new things, that's going to be totally fine. This is probably one of the reasons why you mentioned earlier in the chat that advanced OS is your favorite classes, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe they're all tied together. But uh, was there any like, particular resources in terms of books or blogs or just general classes that you would recommend for people who are new to operating system that you know they should read up to? So from a data perspective, I think... There's the book Designing Data-Intensive Systems, or maybe it's Designing Practical Data-Intensive Systems, or maybe I'm making up the word practical, I don't know. But that one's, I think, Martin Kleppman. Mm -hmm. Probably have to Google that. I think that was an incredible overview suggested by a couple of my coworkers. They rave about it, and I also continue to rave about it after I finished reading it. Um, I think that was good in terms of just like basic systems concepts, like how does multiprocessing work? What's the difference between multi-threading, multiprocessing? Um, I think there are some really good resources in the Stanford systems course called CS110. I TA'd that course recently. And that just assumes like a, I think, basic understanding of C programming and maybe like what is a struct or what is a pointer to some extent. It was a pretty good overview of concepts like, yeah, multi-processing, multi-threading. What else did we teach in that class? Like basic networking. There's also a MapReduce assignment. It was a good survey class, I think. And also like coding assignment wise. So totally recommend checking that out. I'll be sure to put the link to the show notes. So anyone interested can check it out. Throughout our conversation so far, you know, we, we talk about like sort of you playing around with different career mode, essentially picking up different experience via different you know, different interests to say. And one of your most recent blog posts is a detailed guide for a new CS graduate on whether to pursue a PhD degree or to join an early stage startup. And it totally reflects your own personal experience. Uh, yeah, so why did you choose to go to a startup? I don't know if it's, now that I think about it, I don't know if it's much as a guide as it is just like an insight into my thought process a year and a half ago. But yeah, why a startup? I, in summary, I was working on machine learning research and trying to argue like, oh, we should build really robust machine learning models because in the real world, if we don't do that, such and such might happen. And it dawned on me that I didn't know really what machine learning was like in the real world because I was sandboxed in a quite academic environment. Uh, there are multiple ways, I guess, to learn about machine learning in the real world. But for me, I wanted to learn how to do it like, from scratch where there's no infrastructure, but you're working with terabytes of data 
And to me, like a startup that didn't have a product but had a compelling vision felt like the place to go. But I think it's really hard to find those. I somewhat got lucky in finding Viaduct and being the first machine learning engineer there for sure. Kind of talking about the startup that you're currently working on, being a first machine learning engineer at Viaduct and uh, the company develops end-to-end machine learning and data analytics platform to empower original equipment manufacturers to manage, analyze, and utilize the connected vehicle data. And so for the listeners who are not familiar with Viaduct, right, can, can you give a brief overview of the company as well as some of the, the types of problems in the connected vehicle space? And you know, for you personally, what dropped you to work there? Um, at Viaduct, we basically build machine learning platforms for OEMs, including vehicle companies, to get insights from their connected vehicle data. And what does that mean? It basically means that most vehicles in the past like five, six, it's 2020. So since 2014, most vehicles in the past several years are now kind of on the internet, basically. And they send a lot of their like sensor information to the car company. And the car company sits with all of this like terabytes of information, doesn't know what to do with it. At Viaduct, we essentially try to deploy several different solutions, one being like a predictive maintenance solution to help make the car safer rather than just recall literally every single vehicle that might have a faulty part. Could we be more targeted with that? We also are trying to develop driver personalization tools. Or the main problem being that vehicles transmit their data over the internet to the company, but this could cost like billions of dollars in networking costs. Um, every year or so. So how can we maybe compress that data intelligently before sending it over the internet to save money in both storage and transmission? Um, So I think there's a lot of like very exciting problems in the space because it's a space that has a lot of data, but no intelligence really has been applied to it. And I guess that's what drove me to work at Viaduct in that there's tons of data. Nobody's really applied machine learning algorithms at scale. And at the time that I joined Viaduct didn't have the like product or infrastructure or several clients that we do have today. So it felt like I could really join in from the ground or on the ground and have this multifaceted role in which I was interacting with different people, being super technical as well as thoughtful about the product. Mm, I see. What are some of the, you know, example client, I guess the industry that your company clients is based in? We work with OEMs. So essentially, like those could be car companies, vehicle companies. Uh, We can't disclose the exact names of the companies. Definitely some tier one OEMs in there. Gotcha. So the reason you work there is the opportunity to build out the infrastructure to work with massive amount of data for organizations that haven't been able to utilize them in the most optimal way. Yeah. And I think another thing that is very unique to Viaduct as an applied machine learning company is that we are focused on a specific vertical. Like we are focused on OEMs and finding the problems that are unique to OEMs and building ML tooling around solving that versus a lot of other applied ML startups that I see are kind of just trying to cater to everybody, which is super hard. Like how do you, how do you build like machine learning as a service to like drug discovery company for, for drug discovery companies, as well as like the U S government as well as like the stock market or like finance companies. It, it just seems like there's like so many different problems. Like I, I don't know how to build like a one product fits all in that case. Whereas at Viaduct, it's much easier to solve that problem because we could go in super deep on a vertical like OEMs. Yeah, that's, that's a very keen insight. 
So yeah, talking about your, your experience at Viaduct, you recently wrote a very well-received blog post called Reflecting on a Year of Making Machine Learning Actually Useful. And so this post emphasized the importance of rethinking the data paradigm, the need for model reproducibility and replicability, and the principles for designing effective machine learning system. You know, what are some of the common misconceptions that people have about the differences between machine learning in research and practice? So I'll talk about two big misconceptions here. One being that I think machine learning in practice is a lot more about the data than the models. So if you have a data set and you're building a model for it in practice and it doesn't get great results, a lot of the times in academia or research, you'll try to tune the architecture of the network or I don't know, like try different models or even ensemble models. But I found that the biggest gains um, actually come from maybe rewiring the train and test splits or adding new data, sources of data, like pulling in weather data from some API or something like that. What, yeah, so that big misconception being in practice, like data can give you, or adding new data or reformatting your data can give you much bigger gains than, I don't know, switching from like a random forest to like a gradient boosted classifier, <laughs> something like that. Another big misconception I think that exists is that a lot of people believe like, okay, modeling is the hard part when trying to do machine learning or just like the machine learning part is the hard part when trying to do applied machine learning. And I don't think that's true. I think that the engineering around building the systems to do machine learning and also building systems that allow multiple data scientists to collaborate on the same machine learning problem as well as iterate on them without losing experiment results. Like how many times in academia have I found myself like, oh, I can't replicate my results, but that's okay because I was the only person writing the code from the project anyways, and I'll figure it out. But when you're at a company in which 50 data scientists are collaborating to work on a problem, if you can't reproduce the results, all of a sudden, like 50 people's time is spent towards independently trying to reproduce results, and that's no good use of time. So definitely, like the systems, the architecture around machine learning tooling, I think is way more challenging than maybe just coding up the ML algorithm itself. In, in a blog post, you brought up some really good point that reproducibility in, in production requires much more than in research, you know, not just the experiment, but also the data collection, ETL, feature engineering, the split, yeah. and, you know, deployment, monitoring, that kind of stuff. So I think that kind of goes along pretty well with, with your second point about the importance of designing that end-to-end -end system that can handle all these different aspects, right? Totally. You know, at the end of that blog post, you state that a new crop of practitioners will emerge, those that shape the culture around how data scientists, engineers, and product people collaborate on applying machine learning such that it is actually useful. You know, so what do you think this collaboration might look like? And what are some of the elements of tech company culture that can serve as barriers to, you know, collaborative and useful machine learning? Yeah, I think the collaboration could play out in a lot of ways. But one of the core problems that I've been seeing or at least hearing about when talking to other companies and I'm hopefully trying to avoid while building out machine learning engineering at Viaduct is that data scientists often seem to be siloed from the engineering team and that maybe they'll have like a nice CSV data set that an engineer has like, I don't know, generated for them or maybe there's like an interface for them to write like 12 lines of SQL and then output a CSV data set 
that they can download to their computer and then play around in pandas to like experiment with a model. And then they throw the model back over the wall to the engineers and the engineers are tasked with putting it in production. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of silo is quite annoying in multiple ways. Like for example, what if there's a data science assumption that was made that actually fails in practice, but the data scientists didn't know that. And the machine learning engineer obviously didn't know that because they don't know the assumptions that the data scientists are making. So how do you like effectively collaborate with not just experimentation of models, but also making those models work on a recurring basis and actually deliver value. So that silo, I think, will have to be bridged in some way. And it's hard for many reasons, like one being, okay, maybe you could build a lot of tools for data scientists. But I think data scientists are fundamentally different than software engineers in that, or engineers in general, and that data scientists come from different backgrounds. I don't see that many data scientists who are like super thrilled about learning about the, the latest and greatest new tool. Like, that seems to be a very engineering mindset of like, I want to have 12 different tools in my stack and like, I'm gonna inspect the outputs of each one of them and like design the cleanest pipeline, it's gonna be great. Whereas in data science, like their whole advantage is to like really build insightful models that deliver value. And arguably like you shouldn't need 14 different tools in there <laughs> to do something. So I guess what elements of tech culture are barriers to this collaborative learning? Mainly the silo. I, I don't know how large companies do it. Maybe the large companies are siloed in some way. Maybe there's going to be like a concept of a more like model PM that interfaces or bridges the gap between data scientists and software engineering in some way. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be some tooling around or education around engineers learning about machine learning. Like, for example, when a model fails in practice, is that because the model itself wasn't robust to data set? distribution shift or was it because I don't know like we will never be able to solve that continual learning machine learning problem and you'll have to continually retrain models but the software engineer didn't know that yeah so a lot of these collaboration issues I think will have to be worked out in the future and it's also really exciting because I feel like we're at the cusp of uh, building something new I see seems like a strong focus on just education and and communication between different roles. When you brought up that point of like, you know, data science and ML engineer work together, you know, one, one person do modeling and the other one sort of focus on, on the infrastructure and, and deployment stuff. You know, what, what do you think about this concept of like full stack person who kind of take care of the whole pipeline, you know, from data engineering to model deployment. So that way there's probably not going to be any problem with, you know, someone build models and it doesn't work in the real world because that person have to take full ownership of, of the outcome. You know, what, what do you think about that sort of organizational structure model? And I guess like at what company size does that actually feasible? Yeah, I, I think that actually is playing out in my current company and that machine learning engineers at my company have that more like full stack approach of being able to do data science, make a model and also uh, promoting that model into production on a regular basis or training and then promoting that model to production on a regular basis. I don't know how much this scales though, because uh, if you think about the skill sets that are required for quote unquote like full stack machine learning practitioner, I don't, I don't know what the title is. Like, are you expecting them to be like, to have like a master's or PhD in statistics or some like quantitative field as well as an undergrad in like computer science or some like software engineering major like that? seems quite hard to find. <laughs> like, so so I, I, I don't know what the skill set, the job description, 
and what that'll look like. And especially like you want to learn from, or I guess you want to hire like senior engineers, mm -hmm. right? A lot of the things that are being taught for this like quote unquote full stack ML engineer role was never taught like five years ago, or these weren't even concepts that came up five years ago. So I, I see this role existing, but definitely being iterated on. Gotcha. You talk about interviewing people and, and hiring people for your startup, right? So yeah, a, a big part of your role at Vedak is to interview and recruit new hires. And yeah, you actually been quite open about the challenge of recruiting female engineers. And you, you explain on Twitter that it is hard to sell women candidates when their alternatives are conventionally sexy. So can you unpack that? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this is going to be a hypothesis of mine. But I think growing up, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a representation issue of women in tech. You just don't see that many women in tech. And part of addressing that representation issue, I think, while I was in high school and college, were, was all of these like wonderful programs, bringing in like women tech leaders to speak about their experience and stuff like that. But they all happen to be like, like in management positions. I don't think they a lot of them didn't study computer science in college. And even if they did study computer science in college, they quickly went into like a PM or like a consulting or more business oriented role after that. Like I, there are like a lot of women tech COOs, for example, or CMOs, or even CEOs, not like some great representation, but it just feels like there are a lot more of those than like women individual contributors or open source contributors. Um, I remember reading one of the, these like Quora posts that was like, who are the best programmers in the world? And the only woman on there was Ada Lovelace, who existed in the like 1800s. So <laughs> it is quite sad that I think there aren't that many like strong women programmers that could serve as role models to women who are trying to study to be those roles. And how does this play out, I guess, in recruiting, at least at the company I work for, is like we're looking for technical women who are interested in working at a startup, like coding on a regular basis, going really into those weeds, which is very different from that like PM role or like COO role that uh, I think was advertised to us in college as like, this is what the epitome of like being a woman in tech can be like. And I, I know this is strongly opinionated, like you can always come up with counter examples to what I'm saying. Like there are some really awesome female programmers that are out there, but um, in terms of hiring, I wish that there was more representation of women who are actually coding day-to-day -day on a regular basis, doing systems design, super involved in the open source community. Like one, one common misconception of like, like doing IC work is that it's a lonely thing and that you're coding by yourself all the time to build all these systems. But I, I would argue that's false. Like open source is so collaborative. Like there are people constantly making PRs on your work and trying to add to what you're doing you're trying to add to what other people are doing like there's hardly any day i would be lucky if i had one day a week just coding by myself like it just it doesn't happen and, and i wish these misconceptions of engineering work or programming work kind of didn't exist i see it, it definitely a conversation that probably gonna keep happening and keep resurfacing right because servicing totally. over a, a long period of time until there is that, uh, like you mentioned, role models of female engineers in highly technical roles that um, demonstrate the possibility that 
jungle female is going to aspire to become. I was going to say, like, to that point, I, might, I have a 14-year-old sister, and she just asked me, like, out of the blue, like, oh, like, what is machine learning? Because she sees me on all of these, like, calls every day talking about, like, oh, machine learning and, like, precision and, like, recall. And, like, all these, like, <laughs> she could make a word cloud for me probably better than the internet. But it's just to see her curiosity about something so technical. And I like pulled out my iPad and explained to her like, oh, like if this is a function, like you learned in algebra and you have a loss function that you're trying to minimize or make as small as possible. So how do you come up with the value of like, in the linear regression case, well, like y equals mx plus b case, like how do you come up with the m and the b such that this loss function is as close to zero as possible? What are the trade-offs? Intuitively, what does regularization mean? And to see her curiosity, I think, around that was so cool, probably because she hasn't been biased by like, a lot of like successful women leaders in tech who don't like this. I, I don't know. She, she probably just hasn't been, she probably just hasn't been biased, which is really cool to see. Yeah, no, definitely. Thanks thanks for, for sharing that experience. That sort of like kind of emphasized the importance of program like, like C++, right, which you, when we talked about earlier, which bridged the gap and, you know, have having a community of, of women in, in tech, women in machine learning, women in computer science that, you know, yeah, totally. that's an example. Yeah, and just, just, you know, a quick side note on that. Do, do I have any recommendation in terms of, I, I guess, like communities or whether it's in meetup group or Slack group or any sort of groups like that you want to, to, to talk about? And yeah, I, I put that in the show notes so people can, can check it out. Yeah, I think the Women in Machine Learning Twitter is pretty awesome, or just, like, random, like, women in uh, machine learning, like, meetups. I think there's also Women in Data Science, which is very cool. Not just for the women groups, like, also Black and AI is a very active group that I've been following, and I think they do an incredible amount of work. Yeah, I I mean, it's, it's also just so easy to just follow these groups on Twitter if you don't want to like feel like you have to like dedicate so much time to the cause like that's totally fine just click the follow button read something about what they're doing it is very exciting totally just getting exposed to those yeah examples you know starting out with, with uh, understanding first and then action you're probably going to follow so so you talk about open source you know talking about contributing to open source software you pretty well known recently for building this library called GPT-3 Sandbox. So like, you know, this competition is probably going to be uh, probably like, you know, sometimes later this year, but at the point of the chart right now, so the internet has been buzzing around GPT-3 lately. And uh, if you don't know it, it's OpenAI's pre-trained ML model that's optimized to do a variety of um, natural language processing tasks. And so to facilitate the application of GPT-3, you know, Shreya and a couple of other people have developed and open source this Sandbox library Basically, it helps users get started with the GPT-3 API. And, and, you know, what are some of the pain points of making GPT-3 model work? And I guess, how did you build this library to address them? Yeah, so when I was motivated by when I first got access to GPT-3, like, I was super excited because I saw all these cool demos on Twitter and I wanted to try to replicate one. And I sat there and I couldn't do it after a few hours. I was like, why is this model giving me garbage? <laughs> Like I was very frustrated and I thought like, I don't understand, like I have a fairly decent machine learning background and computer science background, what am I doing wrong? Um, and I was talking to one of my coworkers and also a good friend 
And both of us just like sat there, tried to wrap our head around like, what were we doing wrong? Because there's only one way to use this API as of now, or I think they might have released fine tuning API, I'm not sure, but you couldn't fine tune the model. So really all you could do is provide some like priming input and mm -hmm. then the model would like generate the next like several tokens. So I think the biggest pain point we found was like, how do you construct that priming text to actually get intended output? So if you want to build that like really famous English to React code generator, you have to provide it with some examples of like English to React code. But how do you format that? Like literally, how do you paste that into a, how do you turn that into a query or a string to send to the API? Like it'll be something like input colon English uh, backslash n output colon React code backslash n backslash n. Like, and do that multiple times. So just that like pure act of formatting um, took us a while to figure out. And I mean, we just built GP3, GPT-3 sandbox to automatically do the formatting because it seems like it's something that could be easily automatic, automated, like adding the backslash ends, appending the inputs and the outputs. Mm -hmm. And then also, at least for myself, like I'm terrible at web development. So can you like spin up a basic <laughs> React app or something to like, demo or provide an interface to actually interact with the tool because i think i think with a lot of technologies that come out the interface in which you interact with that technology really does have an impact on the experience that you have with that technology so coming up with that interface or easy demo that could be spun up using just a few lines of python mm -hmm. was also something that my colleague and i were super interested in so yeah we built the sandbox to address that and initially there were a lot of people who were very excited I think, who had the GPT-3 key. And then like a week later, randomly, everyone else got excited. I don't really know what happened, actually. <laughs> but yeah. The library is, is very active at the moment, like more than 1.2 thousand stars. And yeah. So oh, nice. um, just, just curious, like, do you have any plan to, to keep contributing? And what, what are the, let's say, are other people curious to, or like excited to uh, contribute or make something with it? What would you point them to? Or? What are the future development that you expect to work on? Yeah, I haven't made like a roadmap or we haven't made a roadmap or anything for it. <laughs> at some point, whenever I have more time, I would love to play around with fine tuning the model if possible. I think one question that I have is at what point does your task require fine tuning or can you just solve your problem with intelligent prime input to the model? kind of getting a feel for that like why bother fine-tuning the model if you don't need to if you can just if you can build that like english to code generator without fine-tuning the model i think there are a lot of things you can do without fine-tuning the model just exploring that a little bit more what the fine-tuning would be like no big plans or anything but please feel free to contribute to the repo i mean that's that doesn't mean people shouldn't contribute <laughs> got it and okay so so just in terms of gpt3 itself you know, very curious to hear your thought because I, I read this, this Twitter thread that you put on last month, but um, there was this lie that I that I really lie. And it's just curious to like, you know, if you can unpack that a little bit, but essentially you said that, uh, you know, this, this model is 170, 175 billion parameters, which is an order of magnitude compared to anything that happened past couple of years. And, and you mentioned here that serving a model of that monstrous size efficiently and cheaply is an entirely new software problem for the industry. And if uh, OpenAI can, can crack this, they can become the AWS of modeling. So yeah, can, can you just unpack that? Yeah, so 
I don't know exactly what the software problems of that are. Like in theory, it is possible to put that on a computer, one computer and serve that, but you just have an incredibly large instance. So ideally you would, you would be able to use smaller computers or distribute that in some way. I'm not really sure, but like, again, if, if you have something that's more distributed, then you have latency because of networking costs. And I've also noticed when interacting with the best GPT-3 model, like it's not that fast to get output. Like you have to sit there and wait for like five seconds to get your output. Um, so how do you like reduce that latency? Maybe that, maybe that is intentional. Um, I don't know, but it, it doesn't seem easy to have low latency in that way. I think the other thing is like recuperating the training costs somehow. So if it costs, I, I read somewhere on the internet that it costs like 12 billion, sorry, $12 million to train the model. Like how, how, how to recover $12 million <laughs> seems crazy to me. The co comment that I made about AWS of modeling, I think revolves around this paradigm of if people who are trying to do applied machine learning stop focusing on fine-tuning their models and instead reformat their machine pr learning problems to be this like priming concept. Like mm -hmm. if they have a language task rather than training a model to solve the specific instance of that language task or fine-tuning a model to solve that specific instance, mm -hmm. they just have some inputs and outputs or whatever they want formatted nicely and they send that to GPT-3 mm -hmm. and then suddenly they've kind of approximated a model to do what they want. And I mean, they would have to pay for every use of the API. So in, in some way, yeah, it becomes an AWS or some cloud provider of modeling. Interesting, yeah. Basically, like, like a self-assessed marketplace yeah. for, for different types of models. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, concept. totally. Very, very interesting concept. Yeah, so, so you know, I, I want to conclude our conversation on a more personal note. So you've been quite public about suffering from mental illness throughout your time at Stanford. And, you know, Mental health has been a topic that I've personally been paying a lot of attention to lately, you know, various uh, discussion groups or resources from books and podcasts. You know, wh what have you learned from overcoming this challenge that you want to share with the listeners? To caveat, I don't think I've overcome this challenge. Anybody with like chronic mental illness or like bipolar, serious mental illness knows that you don't just overcome the challenge in a few months and like pack up and carry on life to normal. It's, I think it's a huge work in progress. To me, at least from talking to other people, I've realized that it's a lot more commonplace than I imagined. Like there are a lot of really, really, really high performing people who are seriously impacted by mental illness, but there's some sort of stigma around not talking about it. It feels weird to me and I feel like I'm relatively early in my career and I want that to also be a part of my career to kind of take away that stigma to make it, I don't know, more acceptable for people of different backgrounds to kind of join tech fields, make it more inclusive. Things that I think I've learned specifically. So one thing I'm really trying to work on is having like intrinsic motivation to keep doing my work, even when I don't, or I feel depressed or don't want to do it. I think it's super hard because it's cyclic for me, like every oh, few months or so, like I'll be super depressed because of bipolar and like, with working with a therapist, that's it's been helpful, but I think I have, I've had to accept that like I'm only 50% capacity at some time. So th there's no point in just like planning a lot of the normal amount of work for me to do or normal amount of meetings. 
just like cut everything at 50%, at least try to achieve that because I feel really good whenever I like cross my to-do list tasks off and I hate it whenever I like still have more stuff to do. So there's a lot of like little things like that. But I think generally something that I've learned is I think therapy is incredibly useful and um, growing up, at least in like a pretty conservative town or even like as a child of immigrants, there's a stigma that like you go to therapy if you like have like quote unquote mental illness and whenever you're cured, then you stop going to therapy. And I just, I think that's false. It's like, it's kind of like saying, oh, you never see the doctor ever again if you believe you're a healthy functioning human being. But that's false. Like people go in for well visits all the time to like just make sure that they're doing okay and like nothing's going wrong. So like applying that concept to therapy, like I should regularly go to therapy, even if nothing is like super wrong with me or I don't feel like something is wrong at the time. Because you never know like when it'll be useful. And all the problems that come around therapy of like, oh, if I need a therapist and I don't actively have one, it takes like six months to get your foot in the door with a therapist, but you might not like that therapist. So you have to switch to another therapist. Like it's just, I feel like it's just so much better to just have that outlet of like therapy or therapists that you can trust so that whenever you need to rely on that more, like it is there for you. Yeah. Thanks for you know sh- sharing that, that uh, example and, is a continuous process that, that you try and get better every day and uh, yeah. developing, you know, an appreciation for mental wellness is, um, is definitely, you know, suddenly become more and more important topic, especially uh, given this current climate. And so I think the message yeah. that you brought up is very important, but I think like, you know, you brought up therapy and, and that's uh, something I haven't tried, but, you know, definitely can be a good resource outlet for anyone who, who, who want to, you know, get out of their head and become more calm uh, and be more high performance in their daily work. Yeah, and I'm really glad it is being destigmatized to some extent. Like, at least when I first joined at Stanford, it, it was like a sign of weakness to some extent, at least in my dorm that I lived in, to to go seek counseling for students or something. It's like, oh, like, something must have really gone wrong in your life. You must have failed somewhere miserably for you to have to go to therapy. And that's just that's just false. I don't think that's true at all. Um, and I'm really glad to see that people are more openly talking about therapy, at least now. Yes, yeah, so Shreya, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on into the final closing segment, which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions. And uh, yeah, you can give your answers for, for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the machine learning universe whose work you admire. Good question. So in terms of research, I really admire Quark's research. He's a researcher at Google Brain. I really like his like principled approach to asking scientific questions. And like also keeping in mind that like things at the end of the day need to be practical. Yeah, in that respect, like I read one of his recent CVPR papers um, that was kind of like self-supervision or something. And it's just, it's, it's amazing to me that like good ML research it's not just about like having very insightful algorithms, but also a very principled scientific approach, like change one thing at a time, incrementally measure progress compared to existing baselines that you're very confident in. I, I try to apply a lot of those principles in my work. I'm trying to think of more like ML in practice kind of stuff. I really, 
this is not a specific person, but I really enjoy reading Uber's engineering blogs, specifically around like maybe like Michelangelo or like a lot of the platforms that they develop for machine learning at scale over there because they also work with insane insane amounts of time series data. It's, it's, it's awesome to me to see people like coming from data science and engineering backgrounds to build tools that seemingly everybody can use there. So yeah. Yeah, definitely sounds right, exciting. And yeah, I know that the team at people who build Michelangelo, they just created a new company, right? Tecton? Which yeah. Is- it's on my to-do list to look at it so that's exciting <laughs> more modeling and more options for company looking to make make machining useful in the real world second question can you name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better engineering mindset as uh, yeah i suppose you know uh, minus the one that we already talked about yeah so yeah, i talked about designing data intensive uh, applications and i have to credit my coworkers for that can't credit myself um, some other books that are, I think are, well, one other book that I think is super useful that isn't specifically about engineering itself, but it's called Don't Make Me Think. It's a book about web design, actually. And even though it's specific to web design, I really like that it has this principled approach of like asking questions like, will somebody use this? How will somebody use this? How do you make it as easy as possible for the person to use? And like, these are questions that are not specific to web development. These are questions that like, like open source libraries are like, or like machine learning libraries need to answer. How do they solve everyone's machine? How does scikit-learn solve everybody's machine learning problems? Just like thinking from that mindset rather than the mindset of like, oh, I just need to write code to build this feature. I think it's pretty good. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot for putting that out there. And then lastly, uh, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring machining engineers on Twitter? What could you tweet about? I don't know. I think that's a hard one. One of the things that's been on my mind recently is that there are lots of different ways to be an engineer. Like, you don't need to use Vim or Emacs. You don't need to use, like, <laughs> like a certain type of terminal. Like, you don't need to have, like, a very fancy, like, terminal background or font or like you don't need to be reading hacker news all the time i think because like a lot of this I, I feel like somebody just needs to like debunk all of these stereotypes um, like another big one being like you don't sit in your room and code all day like i have my job I, I have tuesdays blocked off as no meeting days intentionally that is the only day in which i code all day there's no other day in which i code all day so just like Maybe at some point I'll write a thread like this, like demystifying things that people probably think I do that I don't actually do and don't even want to do. Brilliant. And I think that's a, that's a great way to end our conversation. And um, just right, I really enjoy our, our chat and just learning about, you know, your, your time at Stanford, your application for, you know, diversity in tech, uh, some of your work experience at Facebook, uh, Google Brand and now at FireDog, the importance of making machine learning work in the real world and uh, some of the great contribution in terms of GPT-3 open source project, as well as, you know, your, your vulnerability of sharing your experience, walking through your mental units. And I, I think like what was stand out to me is just you, you take like a very um, first principle thinking mental model approach to most of the stuff that we work on, uh, whether it's engineering or whether it's community building or whether it's, you know, um, personal development. And, and so I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this um, conversation can, can get a lot of um, inspiration and uh, helpful insights and probably can reach out to you if, if they had any further questions.
question in terms of um, pursuing a career as an engineer. So yeah, Shreya, I um, hope you had the great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Well, it was great talking to you too. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.